One person who knew his life belongs to God was the Apostle Paul. Um, we're going to listen to his life story as it's briefly summarised for us by Luke in Acts chapter 26, verses 2 to 23. He's on trial, he's making his defence. This is what he says. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Oh, King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O King, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer, 
and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Thanks be to God for God's word, God's testimony and its truth. Romans 8, 28-30 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. <coughs> for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Before I speak on our, our theme tonight, just a, a reminder of the opportunity to continue to sing about Jesus at our carol singing on Wednesday evening. So if you like singing, uh, then uh, Wednesday evening, it's all in the, the notice sheet, but an opportunity to uh, sing about Jesus in the streets around us and to proclaim him uh, using familiar carols at this time of year and uh, an opportunity to speak to folk as well, uh, should, we, uh, should we be able to. We're continuing our series looking at the titles of Jesus. And last week we uh, learned from Claire and John Fisher that Jesus is the beginning. Uh, this morning we consider a further title that Paul uses. They looked at a passage in Colossians chapter 1. A uh, further title that he uses, The Firstborn from the Dead. Uh, the Greek phrase here is prototokos ton nekron. Um, and uh, Jesus is given this title twice in Scripture. We've heard uh, the other time at the beginning of the book of Revelation where John writes his greeting to the churches that he's addressing. So what does this title mean and what are the implications for us? Well, I want us to begin by considering the word firstborn and what that means in Scripture. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, the prototokos, in various scriptures, uh, but in relation to other aspects. For example, earlier on in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul writes in Romans, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And the writer to the Hebrews refers to Jesus in this way. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the Greek word for firstborn, prototokos, is one that literally refers to birth order. So the first child born. And in the Old Testament, the notion of the firstborn carries great significance, in particular the first son to be born. The firstborn son inherited his father's place as head of the family, 
He received the Father's blessing and the double portion of the inheritance. And after the Passover in Egypt, God told his people that every firstborn male was set aside as his own. Indeed, the nation of Israel as a whole was referred to as God's firstborn son. Now, the word firstborn in the Old Testament was also used metaphorically, for it was used to refer to the special status of the firstborn as the preeminent son and heir. So the status of the firstborn wasn't necessarily the sole possession of the first to be born, for such preeminence and honour could be transferred one to another. Think of Esau, the one born first, selling his birthright to his younger twin brother Jacob. Uh, or Isaac, the son of the promise, 13 years younger than Ishmael, both sons of Abraham. Or the interesting story of blind Israel's deliberate blessing Manasseh and Ephraim as he crossed his arms in reverse order. The Old Testament notion of firstborn, in its literal and its metaphorical sense, also applies to Jesus when we come to the New Testament. Jesus is not only the first to be born to Mary and Joseph, their firstborn son, uh, the son of the promise that they were given, um, and, uh, but he's also pictured as the new Israel. He is the culmination and fulfilment of God's promise to bless all the nations through the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus fulfills the intended role of Israel as God's faithful firstborn son in his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And he is vindicated by God in his glorious resurrection. So when Paul in Colossians and John in Revelation speak of Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, they are referencing his resurrection from the dead and drawing upon such rich imagery from their Old Testament. For example, the Messianic Psalm 89, a psalm which celebrates the kingship of David and his line and points forward to the Messiah King. It details how one to come of David's line will be uplifted and exalted. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He is one whose line will continue forever, and his throne will endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So we heard this morning from Tim, uh, he is the root uh, of Jesse, he comes from Jesse's line and he rises up as a shoot, the new from the old that was seemingly uh, dead, that was cut down. But as we read this Psalm 89, we see that this honour, this rising up, comes through rejection and death. Let me read to you some more verses, and together, let's picture Jesus, the Anointed One of God. 
But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendour and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. And then here, as the psalm finishes abruptly and seemingly uh, tragically, it does so with these words, which seem to be out of step. In verse 52, Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. <coughs> See, up to that point it seems absurd that praise to God is given. The anointed one of God is rejected, spurned, suffers God's anger and wrath, his covenant renounced, his crown defiled, his strength broken, he is ruined, he is plundered, scorned, his enemies seem to have triumphed and are rejoicing at his defeat. He is forsaken by God, God did not come to his help, but hid himself from him. And his days have been cut short, he died so young. He is covered with shame. Even the taunts of the nations are lobbed at him. They're mocking his every step all the way to his death and he is cast into the grave. And who can escape the power of the grave? But in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, we can understand that the degradation, the despair and death of such an anointed one was translated into glory, hope and life. Jesus as firstborn is the heir of David, exalted and lifted up as the representative of his people. But he is more than this. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. And we see his resurrection fleshed out in the New Testament writings. The Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 2, refers to King David. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah 
that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. The Apostle Paul later says in Acts 13, God raised him, raised Jesus from the dead, so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Jesus, of course, refers to himself uh, as the Son of Man and spoke of his own future resurrection when the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. See, Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead in his resurrected, eternal human body. Note that he is not the first to be raised from the dead in a body. For there were those in the Old and New Testament who experienced in their earthly body a sign of the coming resurrection of sorts. Their earthly body, having the breath of life being breathed back into it, they were brought back to life. But in their old bodies, that would again die one day to await their eternal resurrection bodies. But Jesus new resurrection body is of a new order, one that would no longer be subject to earthly decay and perishing and death, but one that was made for eternity. Jesus is the first born with a physical, bodily resurrection fit for eternity. And his resurrection from the dead was the central truth upon which the rest of the gospel rested. The early church accepted the fact of the resurrection. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The writers of the New Testament clearly witnessed and taught the physical, bodily resurrection of the, from the dead of Jesus. But with this teaching, there is the notion that Jesus was the first of many to rise from the dead. As we heard uh, think earlier on, the Apostle Paul says that the prophets and Moses said that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead. So what are the implications for the followers of Christ if Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Well Paul writes that before being rescued by Christ we are, in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We live disobediently to God. We follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See, our desire, apart from Christ, is to be gratifying the cravings of our flesh, our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. We are, by nature, deserving of God's righteous wrath. But it is God's grace, uh, by Jesus, through the cross, that he takes the wrath we deserve upon himself and dies our death. Because he is the firstborn, 
He is both first in time and first in preeminence. So through his resurrection, he is the first to rise from the dead, the first fruits of the harvest. He describes something of being a seed sown in the ground, yet springing up to new life and harvested. And those who die in Christ are also spoken of as first fruits in Christ. They will live. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read, Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we are saved. So Jesus is also the founder and initiator of this new era that God is bringing about through his victory over sin and death. His resurrection from death opens up the way for all who trust in him uh, to follow him in a resurrection like his when he returns. Our ultimate hope is not for our disembodied souls to go to heaven, but our living for eternity in physical bodies to be raised to new life like Jesus' body was. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also, Paul writes to the Corinthians. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. But of course, that resurrection life, that new life, begins here and now, while we remain on earth, eagerly awaiting the fullness of the hope to which we are called the perishable, being made imperishable, the mortal, clothed in immortality. When we receive Jesus as our Saviour and Lord, we receive the first fruits of the Spirit of God who causes us to be born again. This image of dying and coming to life is what firstborn of the dead is all about, being born out of death. Jesus made it crystal clear that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In fact, he says it again, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The good news is that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Of course, in believers' baptism, we have an outward sign of what has happened inwardly. We have a picture of the old life put off and the new life put on. Paul writes to the Colossians, your whole self, uh, ruled by the flesh, was put off uh, by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. To the Romans he writes, but we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
When we respond to God's word in Christ, we die to our old way of life and we rise up into our new life found in Christ. We are born again of God's Holy Spirit. Peter refers to this when he writes to his fellow Christians in 1 Peter 1. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So I want to encourage those who know and love the Lord Jesus here this evening, that Christians now can live a fruitful life in Christ. In Romans we read, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Christians have a sure hope that in Christ we live as part of that new creation now and yet to come. Again, Romans chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Christians will reign with him as the firstborn of God, heirs of all things in heaven and on earth. In 2 Timothy 2, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And to the Ephesians, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Christians have resurrection power to live their lives for Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Christians have purpose of life now in Christ Jesus. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I finish with uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul writes to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to others as witnesses of the resurrection. Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of the dead and of Christ is fundamental to our faith. In fact, he spells it out, that if Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, then we have no hope. The scripture is a false witness and a false testimony. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Jesus' followers 
In fact, if Christ has not risen from the dead, are deluded, they're misguided, they're to be a people most pitied. The hope that we have is simply a human hope, wishful thinking, but wrong. This life is all there is. So he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Futile, if Christ is not risen from the dead. But Paul asserts in verse 20 that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, that Jesus is both the firstborn of the dead and the first fruits of new life and new creation. So I urge us to live our lives in light of the truth of Christ's resurrection, living now for him and not for ourselves. This is the implication. For there are those, Paul says, who will mislead us into simply living for this life and our earthly appetites. But this is foolishness. Paul writes, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. See, we've died to our old way of life, the satisfaction of self. We now live for the new king in town. We live resurrected, Holy Spirit-enabled, Holy Spirit-filled lives, dying daily to self and selfishness and living in the power and might of the Spirit of God who enables us to walk with God, to be obedient to his ways, to love God and to love others as ourselves. And as those raised with Christ, we bear the image and likeness of that heavenly man. One day, our perishable body will be raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonour, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. You live a new life now. You've begun your eternal life. Live in the light of the truth of the resurrection. Live for him, not for sin. If you've not yet received Jesus as your personal saviour and your Lord, then do so today, this evening, before it is too late. Jesus, as the firstborn of the dead, fulfills all history as the Messianic King descended from the line of David, the Apostle Paul writes Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my Gospel. Jesus is both the first to rise from the dead in an eternal resurrected body, and he is the first in supremacy over all who are to be part of that new creation enabling those who follow him to reign with him. Rejoice, Christ is risen. 
It's a funny thing to say as we lead up to Christmas, but it is risen indeed. 